Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Oh, that'll be Sandy Hudson Esquire to you. Ho, ho, ho. You know, I've actually never really understood what Esquire meant. <laughs> oh, it's just bullshit. It's <laughs> I'm being exposed as ignorant right now. No, it's, I, I think, I think it might be an American thing. I'm not sure, but only in certain parts of America, certainly not where I am, that um, people put Esquire on the end of lawyers' names. Oh, oh, you're a lawyer now. Yeah. So um, I'm obviously not going to do that. <laughs> so it's ridiculous. But I am a lawyer. Did you hear? I'm a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I finished up everything and graduated and my degree was conferred on Friday of this week. And so that is all done. Uh, very exciting, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least a massive relief on my end, and I feel like I understand the world in a little bit of a different way now. So, um, that's always good. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not easy to go back to school when you're older. Not saying that you're old, but you know, you know, that's not easy. <laughs> that's not easy. I think it's, I think it's easier to go back to school when you're. Holder. <laughs> well, t- time certainly flies faster uh, than when you're young, so that probably helped. <laughs> yeah, and I will say that, um, you know, if you are going to go back to school, doing it through, um, you know, the Zoom school of law, if that's what you choose to do, uh, it certainly certainly makes school f- fly by faster, I think. Mm, I don't know, although right. I don't know if that was Zoom or just the pandemic or just living in a city with no seasons, but... Either way, it did seem to really fly by um, at the same time as it creeped right along. So here we are. And you know what the best news is, Nora? Um, I went to school in the United States at a time when everything about constitutional law is being ripped up and thrown in the garbage. So <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> that is great. Um, all the things about constitutional law that I have learned are rapidly becoming irrelevant. <laughs> so, yeah, there we go. That's so awesome. I can't believe the time has flown by. And um, and you know what? Like, a lot of people were having pandemic babies, and I think having a pandemic law degree is a better choice. To No, no offense to everyone that has pandemic <laughs> babies. I'm sure that you're all super happy right now, too. But, um, yeah, what an interesting way to spend the, t- the pandemic, and what an interesting perch from which to view the American justice system and its um, collapse, uh, slow decay, crumble, fast decay. I don't know. I don't know where it's at right now, what we would what we would characterize it as. Yeah, well, I think the justice system is it's like it, it'll continue to, to trudge along. It's not decaying. What's decaying is, I think, American civilization altogether. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, interesting perch, certainly, to watch that from. And I think, you know, now that I'm done school and we're heading into a long weekend, we might want to take a little bit of a celebratory break. I'm sure you have mm. stuff to celebrate, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The spring. Um, no, it is getting super busy. Uh, things seem to be happening at a pace uh, right now that, uh, you know, people are like, oh, my goodness, the pandemic is 
in a new era and I can start to do certain things again. So yes, a break would be um, would be very welcome, but not a, not a long break, right? Not a long break. So listeners, we're going to take the next two weeks off. So you will hear from us again on May 31st, just in time for us to give you a few thoughts before the Ontario election. May the Lord bless us with something to fucking talk about because... Um, um, <laughs> yeah, I'd like a few thoughts, like very few thoughts, as in there might not be that many thoughts to give. <laughs> right. That sounds okay. That there sounds good. Are. So we'll be back uh, right before the Ontario election. That'll be um, a blast for sure. And in the meantime, uh, maybe we'll slip in some old episodes, uh, maybe maybe some of our more popular episodes that tend to be a little bit more timeless than, you know, I don't know, recap of the 20. 19 election debate, for example. So we'll, we'll try to find some interesting episodes for you for some for some listen backs and to take some time off for ourselves and, you know, be in touch. Let us know how's the season going so far. What should we talk about uh, that we haven't touched on yet? We'd love to hear from you for sure. And Sandy, we have some people to thank. I love it when we have people to thank. Let's go. <laughs> well, I have to admit that things are a little bit out of order. And so I'm going to read some names. And if I've already read your name um, last week, uh, consider yourself, I don't know, uh, super like lucky. And it's cool that I'm giving you a shout out again. <laughs> but for some reason, uh, the inbox won't go in a chronological order. And so I can't actually sort out. Um, I think I jumped over some names. And if that's you and you were never in touch with us, um, you know, feel free to be in touch. Be like, hey, I, I changed my donation. Why are you not, why not shouting me out? I'm happy to do that. And so this week, thank you so much to the, the folks that changed their donation or that donated to the podcast for the first time, especially Emily, Ed, Katie, Alan, Miles, and Kelly. We really appreciate you all. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. We so appreciate all of you. Okay, so while I had like a celebratory uh, week, it was also a very sobering weekend as we learned about the horrifying events that happened in Buffalo. The information that we know so far uh, in, I mean, we're recording this on Monday, so later than normal. And so the news has been pretty... Uh, seemingly robust, not sure if any of these details will change, but um, that uh, an 18-year-old white guy drove um, many, many, many miles from where he lives to go to a supermarket where the customers are majority black and opened fire and killed 10 people on the weekend. And this has sparked a lot of discussions, um, both in the United States and Canada, about far-right hatred and far-right um, organizing, I guess, organizing online, um, and, and discussions about something that I've seen way too many media outlets in Canada refer to as a new conspiracy theory, that is the replacement theory. Sandy, is, it, is this a new conspiracy theory? It's actually extremely bizarre to me that anyone could, like, with a straight face, talk about this as a new conspiracy theory, especially when, I mean, gosh, in pre-pandemic world, I mean, can we, let's not forget what happened in North Carolina when, you know, that, that tiki torch sort of um, weird thing that a bunch of white supremacists did um, in which um, a woman was killed uh, during this series of... Um, activity by white supremacists 
I mean, one of the the chants that uh, that they were chanting at that Tiki Torch rally that you might remember, it was at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. We witnessed all of these people, um, these white folks carrying these Tiki Torches and having that Tiki Torch rally. Remember that? And one of the chants was, um, you will not replace us and also Jews will not replace us. That was a you know, that is a part of this whole white replacement theory. But this has been going on for a long time. Like, I think I recall hearing about this conspiracy theory that white people were being replaced uh, in in the West um, around the time that there started to be this sort of um, flurry of uh, commentary about how many people of color there were in the city of Toronto and when they would, when there would be more people of color than white people. And then again, when there would be more pe- people of color uh, than white people in other major cities it, across Canada, across the United States, um, in different places, this theory comes up all the time when that's being discussed. And I think the first time I heard it was sometime in the early 2000s. So New theory? New theory. It is not um, gaining steam. Absolutely it is as uh, white supremacy continues to deepen its foothold in more and more mainstream spaces. Yeah, and it goes it goes way further back th- than just even its packaging as this kind of rallying cry that is bringing far-right racists together. I mean, you know, 2000, in 2006 at the university I went to, ex-university, which is now that got the worst name, <laughs> sorry, I'm just going to keep calling it X University because I think it's much better. Um, there was students that were organizing on campus saying that they were the proud part of the white minority of, 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 of students there. And it was uh, supposed to be a joke and it was supposed to reference the fact that uh, it's a very diverse school, one of the most diverse schools in Canada. Um, but you can go for even further back and, and, and literally call Canadian immigration policy for the last century a form of anxiety-driven replacement theory um, orientation towards towards who's coming to Canada and who populates Canada and are they white enough to populate Canada? And then you can even go, of course, further back to like the fucking founding of Canada as a white as a white Christian nation. I mean, the, these are very old beliefs, and I am I am. I mean, I'm not surprised, obviously. I'm not shocked, obviously. But I I also kind of am at how much journalists in this country are so able to repackage this as being new. Like, how many times does there have to be something that happens that is driven by far-right hatred, hateful ideology, that we then we will finally not have journalists being like, oh, this isn't new. This is literally just the continuation of something that we've seen and that no one uh, has the political will to deal with. Yeah. And I, I, let me add one more. We could even go farther back. And this is connected to the episode that we had last week. You know, it, I mentioned in the episode last week that uh, the the rise of uh, the anti-abortion movement started in like the 1800s um, uh, and was linked to like eugenicist um, ideas. 
in part because there was this idea that undesirable populations, black populations, indigenous populations at the time, Catholic populations and Italian uh, immigrants were having too many babies and there weren't enough white babies. And so that was part of the reason for, you know, wanting to control uh, women's bodies or the bodies of people who give birth and you know, to, to make sure that um, they were, uh, again, replacing the population with the right sorts of people. And then that also becomes an impetus for some of the other things um, that we uh, see with respect to reproductive justice, whether that be sterilization of indigenous and black populations, of people who are incarcerated, um, you know, uh, awful ex experiments with respect to uh, reproduction being run on particular populations, that is all connected to this white supremacist idea that you have to like replace the population with the most desirable parts of the population in this white supremacist society. And that's where this comes from. So if we're, you know, this, this cannot be discussed as a, a new thing. And in discussing it as a new thing, we risk missing the patterns that we should be noticing from the past that are replicating themselves today. And I think that we, uh, by and large as a society, kind of have done that. I think that there have been many populations, many activists, people who recognize this stuff, people who read history, that have been noticing that this stuff has been going on um, for quite some time and refusing to take it seriously, refusing to connect it to these movements of the past, refusing to take seriously um, how violent uh, these movements today are, leads to these moments where it seems like there's this you know, people are talking about this as though it's some sort of isolated incident, something that's new. Oh, it's about 8chan, you know, like as as if it is something that um, uh, must be understood in a completely new way instead of something that is fully connected to so many, um, so many ways that white supremacy shows up in our society and continues to resurge in our society. Yeah, no, exactly. And also, you know, the, the, the way that roots of, of movements like the feminist movement in Canada, which has very deep roots in the eugenics movement uh, that was that was looking to sterilize disabled people as well. And so, like, like if we don't understand where, where things come from, if we don't understand where uh, even even things like the women's movement and fights for reproductive justice, what they had been rooted in, then we're never going to be able to untangle this like hornet's nest of a state that is causing harm in so many complex and, and profound ways that to even try and tackle it feels really impossible. And I think that that's the holding pattern that people in power want us to feel like we're in. Like there are just no solutions. We can't really do anything. I was talking today uh, to um, Leslie Roberts, who's a, a, a talk radio show host from Ottawa, from CFRA. And the last question, I was talking about this issue, and the last question he asked me was, and it was asked in a, in a bit of a resigned way, like not like I have the answer, and he certainly doesn't have the answer, but what are we supposed to do about this stuff? And the answer that I gave him, I said, you know, there's structural issues that, that we can talk about. There's things like... Uh, reducing costs of housing and reducing poverty and 
eliminating tuition fees and doing things that will actually allow people to have access to participate in society rather than have more of a reason to retreat from society and find these kinds of communities online. But on an individual level, like there are just no services to help people who are struggling. And, uh, you know, if you're worried about someone falling into one of these rabbit holes, you're worried that someone um, is talking about taking violent action or is, is, is harassing or harming people online or whatever, there's nowhere to go for help. Like, you know, you can't go to the cops, obviously. And so you remove them from the equation. You're basically waiting for something to happen there where you can maybe get help in an emergency ward, maybe. Uh, or nothing, or you just hope that the the individual will come to their senses. And so there's been like we have no adult conversation in this country about things like, I don't know, like social services that can actually help people break isolation, free cooking classes, free trades, free uh, free opportunities to get together and meet other people and break that isolation, but doing it around something that is communal and collective. Um, and and I, I you know that it's. It's so frustrating because every single time one of these events happen, uh, whether it's now Buffalo or Christchurch or Pittsburgh or in, in Canada, whether it's the Afsal family being murdered or the, the shooting at the mosque or all of these attacks on black hijabi women in Edmonton, like there's never everything is just like this is just too much. We just can't do anything. And then those of us who actually have something to say are often like, you know, just don't aren't listened to like at all because it's just like some of the, the solutions are really simple and it's just much easier to allow the the regular goldfish approach to these things to just continue to happen and like so you know for example there's a, a, a trial going on in Quebec right now the jury was sequestered today and they're deliberating on a case of an individual who went on a uh, stabbing attack in Quebec City on Halloween night in 2020. And, uh, you know, thank God for the pandemic. Halloween night in the old city would have actually been really, really uh, wild, tons and tons of people around. But because of the pandemic, almost no one's, one is, almost no one was around. Sadly, the people who were around, uh, he attacked many of them. He left many people with some very serious and permanent injuries, and he killed two individuals. Now, this trial has gotten a lot of attention in Quebec, but what has gotten very little attention is that this individual also was radicalized by the far right. I mean, like, there's pictures of his tattoos. He's got a swastika tattoo that is very clearly a swastika tattoo that has been covered up. So at some point in his life, he's like, ooh, shit, maybe I shouldn't have this swastika, this swastika tattoo and I'm covering it up. But if you look at the black outlining of the t covered up tattoo, it's very, very obvious what it is. And it's like, oh, in the same city as the, as the shooting at the, at the mosque in Quebec City. This is, that was an individual who drove from Montreal to, 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 to commit uh, his act of violence here in, in the old city. But again, this is nowhere in English media and in French media. The focus has all been on his psychological state, uh, the failures of the system, the cracks that he fell through, why he was so marginalized and isolated. But no, none of the conversation or almost none of the conversation is related to his ties to the far right. Yeah. And that is just simply uh, unacceptable. Like we cannot uh, continue to take a look at these stories and not make these these sorts of ties. And I do want to take a, a bit of a step back. I mean, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard us um, uh, make this justification. But Nora, you said that, uh, you know, d to solve these problems, to address these issues, some of the things that we need are like 
housing and the elimination of tuition fees. And I think maybe for some people that jump is not quite so obvious. So I just want to take a step back and um, let people know, you know, why it is that Nora and I think this, but not just us, but people who work in um, this sort of field addressing hate crimes and addressing the radicalization of people, why this is this is um, the solution that we see. And gosh, like, I mean, it's the solution for so much in our world. It just feels so frustrating that, you know, election after election, you, you see uh, politicians avoiding this stuff. But, you know, uh, part of what's happening here, as more and more people are becoming radicalized um, in this way, is that these people are feeling a sense of desperation in their own lives and are looking for ways to rationalize what's happening or looking for answers or looking for something to do to change that condition. Um, and what that might lead to is like, whose fault is it that I can't get a job? Whose fault is it that I'm struggling right now? Whose fault is it that I'm not living like the life of self-actualization that I want to live? And there are many people who are organizing to make sure that the answer that some people um, get to those questions is it is the fault of black people. It is the fault of other people of color. It is the fault of Jewish people. These people are taking your jobs. These people are controlling um, the, the are, are taking away your ability to live a fulfilled life. These immigrants are changing um, your access to uh, the services that you might need. And that then becomes, that justification becomes something that people can reach. They can reach black people in their hometowns or drive to where they want to reach black people. They can reach um, migrants uh, who are crossing the border and do uh, organizing on the border to try to vilify migrants. And that is why it is so crucial that we build the sort of societies where that sort of organizing cannot happen. And that will take planning. And it takes looking at these issues seriously. And it takes taking um, you know, what is happening on the internet what is happening um, in organizing spaces that include, and we must be honest about the fact that they include uh, schools, they in include workplaces like, you know, the military, where people are working as police. Like these are organizing spaces for people to promote this sort of thinking. And we have to take that seriously, make some sort of plan that will address and reduce the ability for white supremacist organizers to make inroads in the way that they have been making them. And that's the million dollar question, right? And this is where people are always like so hung up on what exactly then do we do? Um, because I think that, well, targeting systemic issues, these structural issues, uh, which I think is the correct answer, um, is not a satisfying answer. It's an answer that is very difficult because there are a lot of roadblocks in our ways to actually addressing them. And we know that things are getting worse. Like to watch the Ontario election and to see someone like Doug Ford doing so well uh, it really makes you think like, OK, like what what the fuck is actually happening here? Like maybe we should just launch the province into the sun like that seems like the only solution. <laughs> right. 
And um, and it sucks because it's like on the on the, the the left of the mainstream parties. I mean, you know, Horvath is is barely left wing. Uh, the policies have gotten a little bit better as they've been challenged throughout the last couple of weeks in the election. But it's a very good example of how um, how difficult this all feels. And then you look at the federal level, and you have um, a rich boys club running the prime minister's office. The prime minister himself is someone who's wore blackface. Many times, so many times he doesn't know how many times he's worn it. And the party didn't really uh, uh, respond to that fact. They were tacitly okay with it, um, uh, other than maybe some words of concern or whatever. Um, And so it it does feel very difficult because how do we pierce through all of this stuff when the obstacles are so huge? And I think that that's where for me it, it what i what really helps is is remembering to look at this through the community lens and through systems and it's like when we can empower communities in in whatever way whatever way that that means because there's a whole bunch of different ways we can empower communities we are able to actually find people and 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 do what's necessary to either give people the services that they need themselves for support or give their family and friends the services that they need to get someone else to have support like it's just it's it becomes it's complicated until you actually look at the life path of someone and say oh that's exactly where they the system failed them um in the case of the murderer of the attack on halloween night there's just like an a whole bunch of 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 situations in this individual's life where you can see very clearly how the school system failed him how emergency services with um with his mental health completely failed him how his parents were not equipped to be able to deal with a, t- a child that was troubled how his parents relationship like falling apart destroyed his life, blah, blah, blah. The person in Quebec City, it was, again, isolation, isolation, isolation. Someone who was obsessed with doing a mass shooting from the age of being 16 years old and who still had access to legal guns, who was never a hunter, had never gone hunting, but would go to the the fucking shooting range consistently. And not one person in his circle was like, wait, 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 why is this guy like shooting so often? He's not hunting. What is what's going on? Oh, he's having serious mental health crises. Maybe he shouldn't maybe the access to the guns need to be put on pause for a little bit like these kinds of things that only are possible when you live in community rather than shutting yourself off from the world and living uh, mostly online which is of course where people are going to radicalize the fastest because as you said sandy these people are there for the individual who's online, who's in, who's in distress and who's looking for the answer that they're looking for to all of their problems. The organizers are online. They're waiting for, they're like Venus flytraps. They're just waiting for a fly to fucking fly right into their mouths and then they just close. And we we can get better on the left of, of trying to do similar stuff online. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the real life, the real world that we actually need to focus on to fix these issues. And it's exactly why uh, looking at these issues and trying to figure out how to criminalize things further is always going to be a dead end because it's just you're not going to solve any of the problems with further criminalization. You'll solve it by injecting power to communities and injecting services to give people what they what they fucking need. And I think that the biggest challenge has we has been that we have not been able to make that connection clear as day in the minds of average people. Yes, I think in terms of like a reactive, uh, if, if, if any sort of person in power would wanted to organize some sort of reactive um, uh, response to these sort of things, 
criminalization isn't the way. What you mentioned earlier around having somewhere to turn to if you notice someone in your circles who is becoming um, radicalized, a, a service that can help people see things in, a, in another way, that would be an appropriate, responsive um, uh, sort of action that people in power could take. But otherwise, it is so critical to prevent this stuff. Like the fact that it keeps happening, you know, I I don't know why someone wouldn't uh, take a look at trying to prevent this in a serious way. I'm really glad that you mentioned, um, you know, Justin Trudeau uh, wearing blackface. I don't know if you've seen, but also Stephen Lecce, the minister of education in Ontario. Um, it was also discovered that while he was the leader of his frat at Western University, um, uh, participated in a slave auction. But sorry, I feel like that was a common knowledge thing that those frats fucking did in the 2000s. Not for me. I didn't. I mean, I, I really tried to, to keep away from anything <laughs> that frats were doing. Um, but I, I did not know that that was a, a common knowledge thing that they did that. I didn't know that. I fuck what I, 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 I mean, we didn't have frats, but I feel like that kind of thing. And when it was, when it's like, oh, he's with Sigma Chi, I was like, oh, I, that doesn't surprise me at the fuck all, because this is also a frat that is very proud of how it gets to place people into positions of fucking power. Right. Well, I mean, it's also possible that I've put this out of my head because I put a lot of things out of my head from, <laughs> you know, undergrad times. But I, you know, I recall on campus when that sort of thing would happen, wearing blackface, um, whatever, these sorts of events um, not being taken that seriously. It's kind of like a, you know, boys will be boys type of situation. Same thing happened um, when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was found to have been wearing blackface God knows how many times. It was kind of, uh, he was a boy back then when he was like, what was it, like 27 or something? I don't know. <laughs> oh, he's like literally fucking teaching. It's like, oh, yes, he was teaching when he was 11. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> he was so young. Like, who knew? And it's just taken with um, as though it is meaningless like these are just they were just trying to be edgy and then the same thing happens with these memes that we're seeing online more and more of that kind of espouse this white replacement therapy that espouse these ideas of anti-blackness um you know people see these memes and it's just like oh it's funny it's edgy but this all of this stuff all of this stuff it serves a very important purpose for those people who are doing white supremacist organizing what it does is it dehumanizes people. It makes this stuff more accessible. It makes the idea of the ideas um, that are uh, white supremacist just a little bit more of a joke, a little bit more accessible. And it makes those spaces and um, these places that these people in power who may have participated in these sorts of dehumanizing activities, it makes those of us who are black it puts us on notice. It's like you, these sorts of things are a joke. You should feel uncomfortable. You are fodder for us to use for our entertainment. It's a dehumanizing experience. And what that does, what that can then lead to, how that becomes a part and parcel of the organizing to take the next step of, well, maybe we should take this a little bit more seriously. It creates the playing ground through which white supremacist organizing can happen. That is why things like in the past minstrel shows were important to creating a sort of um, a racist environment that can then justify 
racist policies. And make no mistake that these sorts of activities, these sorts of environments, they justify racist policies like, you know, in the most, in the the least obvious sense, like let's say tuition fees, which are a racist policy, or lack of access to housing, which is a racist policy, or the wage gap, which is a racist policy. But they also justify further types of um, uh, white supremacist organizing and action like we see leading to what has happened um, all over Canada, the United States, and elsewhere in the world. And so we have to be taking this stuff seriously. For all of the journalists, for all of the media that is like, oh man, this is new. If you did not take seriously when Justin Trudeau um, uh, was dressed up in blackface, if you did not take seriously when Stephen Lecce was found to have have uh, participated in this sort of um, slave auction, I mean, you are participating in this entire context that makes these sort of things possible. Well, and let's actually kind of put that into context as well, because that is all true. And it's the the way, the cynical way that, that governments like the liberal government use race that then makes it even worse. So not only are they excusing or, or and participating in these kinds of dehumanizing acts, but then as a solution to these things, they increase funding to cops. They increase criminalization. They, 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 they say that the only way that we can do these things is by making certain things illegal. They oh, I don't know, invoke the Emergencies Act, which then has a feedback loop to not just the far right, which it absolutely has an enormous feedback loop to the far right. And like, for an example of that, I'm sure many of you, if you've engaged with far right trolls, you will have had the photos of Trudeau in blackface tweeted at you many, many times. And it's but it's done like with the message of look how disgusting Justin Trudeau is. But they're all engaging in the same kind of spectacle. But then it also, of course, like these these policies uh, enrage average people because they can see the hypocrisy. They can see things that are getting worse and that politicians aren't actually doing what needs to be done to make things better. And then they're then they're appropriating progressive language and they're appropriating the language of anti-racism and it's like you guys are really really fucking things up like <laughs> you're you are actively making things worse and I've mentioned this on the podcast before but the one of the clearest examples of this for me is the way that the federal liberals use immigration policy to demonstrate how virtuous they are and it's like if you're gonna do that you're gonna piss off the far right who will become even more rapidly fucking racist about it but then all of a sudden the liberals get coded as being the anti-racist party because they'll allow a smaller number of immigrants, but they'll make a bigger deal about it this year, or they just won't mention how many people have been deported in the last couple of years and how deportations are ramping up and the anti-black racism at the border and within immigration system and the refugee system and within Canada border services. It, it's, it is such a pile of shit. And it's like, God, I, I, I just need, I need every person who cares about this issue to actively out loud resist collapsing far right hatred and white supremacy into issues of, well, they're radicalized online. Well, what can we do? It's very complicated. Well, we need to have the police be more involved in, in charging people and, 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 and actually acting on hate crimes uh, before they happen, because it is not going to exit this territory of shit. That is not going to do it. 
Yeah. Other examples of things that that contribute to this sort of context, this sort of um, uh, like ubiquity of uh, anti-black racism, like every single time I hear about some professor who wants to use the N-word in their classrooms, it's like those sorts of weird fights that are happening in these spaces that, again, like what is taken seriously is some white professor's ability to use the the N-word in their classrooms. But what is not taken seriously is the dehumanization of black students on campus or the inability of black students on campus to have the same sort of experience as other students because of systemic racism. Like none of that stuff is taken seriously. But what is taken seriously is, and this is how it gets encoded, is black people are trying to in- is are trying to control the way we speak and we should be able to speak in whatever way we wish. That feeds into this sort of white replacement therapy, this white supremacist um, uh, 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 organizing um, context. Also, like, when you have a system where there has been huge uprisings against anti-blackness, like, you know, like what has happened um, in the last decade, and um, you, one, one thing that everyone should know is that you know, if you are a reader of history, there is always some sort of backlash. So we should be prepared for those things. But also, if as a system, you refuse to do anything about it, which is what our entire system has done, from our federal governments to our provincial governments, have by and large ignored those uprisings, the message that you are sending to people who are vulnerable to this sort of organizing is that we are irrational, black people. All of the things that we're talking about, it can't possibly be true. Otherwise, somebody would have done something about it or somebody would do something about it. And in fact, because we're causing so much trouble and we're just like constantly bringing up this racism stuff that isn't real, because if it was real, someone would do something about it, then it makes sense to have some sort of response or, or uh, backlash to it that looks like we need to put these people in their place. Like all of that is also part of it. And so the refusal to actually hold power to account when they refuse to do anything about the fact, the fact that you know, uh, we, we don't have these numbers for everywhere in Canada because refuse to take this data. But like in the city of Toronto, black people are 20 times as likely to be shot and killed by police than other people. And I've said this on the podcast before, but like where I am in L.A., it's black people are six times more likely. Like it is it's a huge problem and no one's doing anything about it. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to respond when there is uprisings. Like, why wouldn't people be like, that's obviously not a problem. It's not a real problem. No one's doing anything about it because it's not a real problem. When, when Stephen Del Duca, who is, for those of you who don't know, and I bet there's a lot of you who don't know because why would you know? <laughs> the, the Ontario Liberal Party leader who is currently running for election is Stephen Del Duca. He is completely unmemorable. Um, you know, when his party platform in the election after 2020 is to increase funding to the police so that there could be more diversity on the police forces. It's like, it's like, it's as though we are living in different worlds. 
we're living in different worlds where the black people who have been saying all of this stuff is a huge problem. We are being targeted. White supremacy is a problem. Anti-black racism is a problem for the people of color who have been saying like we have been enduring um, uh, hateful attacks for people uh, who have been enduring anti-Semitic attacks, uh, Islamophobic attacks. You know, when there is no response that makes sense, you are feeding into this idea that we are the irrational ones and you are helping the organizing of these white supremacists. So thank you to all of you who, um, you know, have refused to hold power to account in the way that they should be and to allow uh, for power to respond to organizing against white supremacy, organizing against anti-black racism, as though it's this huge irrational thing. <sighs> yeah, 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 yeah. I I want to talk about the complicity of journalists in all of this and how frustrating that is. Um, and it kind of goes back to this, like, this weird Canadian ex- exceptionalism that exists by just not talking about things. And I think you kind of referenced this last week and how, how in Canada violence is, is just like this thing that, like, we just don't pay attention to. And that's what helps to fuel the violence and make it even worse. Um, so there's been, like, more than 24 murders from far-right hateful uh, violence in Canada. I think the number is even as high as 27 or 28, but I can't find the number very easily um, because no one seems to be keeping a list. And this is not something that is appearing in every single article that that talks about far-right violence, as you would think it should probably be uh, when we're talking about the context of how things have been happening in this country. So let's say it's 24, though, as I say, I'm pretty sure that that's low. I think it's closer to 30. That would be 240 Americans killed by far-right terrorism. Uh, if we were to, uh, you know, inflate the numbers to be equal to uh, the the rate of population in the United States, that is so many. That is, I mean, one wow. one is obviously too many, wow. but fu- that is so fucking many. And so many of these attacks uh, included attempted murder. Uh, right in 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 Quebec City, there were thirty people who were who were injured by the gunmen, um, and six people killed. But then there's there's also other uh, attacks on people as well, where people uh, survived. But but on the murder, it's just it's so high. And how like I know how I'm not going to say how the the refusal of Canadian journalism to deal with this in a, in a fucking serious way, in an adult way, to, re, to rely on, on, on experts who are not fucking these radicalization experts who are all fucking working for CSIS, by the way. That's like what we get from the mainstream are, are professors that all have direct fucking ties to CSIS, which is like, you folks are part of the fucking problem. But like the activists who are confronting this, the activists that are tracking this are fully ignored by, by journalists who are just like, oh shoot, we have to talk about this again. This just happened again in the United States. Bouncing from issue to issue, which all also dehumanizes mm-hmm. like this morning on the current we listened to a, um, a man from buffalo talk about what it was like to experience this in his community now i witness every single year the media swarm that descends on the survivors of the attack in, in in quebec city and how dehumanizing and how difficult it is for them to talk to journalists every single year about the same issues again and again and again and if you can believe it, one of the questions that Galloway asked um, this individual who started the interview was, how do you explain what happened to your son? Oh, my God. What the, what's the guy going to say, Matt? What, what is putting this man's pain 
uh, on display like this in Canada going to do for us Canadians to understand the issue any fucking better? You know, and it's just one example of so many in this country, but it's just like, I don't know what needs to change. I know there are good journalists doing what they can, but that these decisions are made by people from the top. I I don't know what it's going to take to start cracking open some of these fucking shit workplaces, clearly, if these decisions are continuously being made like this. But we have a crisis, and I am far more concerned by the journalists that refuse to actually deal with this in any serious way than the politicians who actually have an interest in not dealing with it, because that's how politics fucking works. Yeah, I mean, instead, we'll just hear uh, time and time again, it'll, it'll be used as fodder for uh, political elections time and time again, because um, that, that is how I think uh, political parties are, are looking at it uh, very cynically as a, as a if we just um, rhetorically state our opposition to white supremacy and racism, then we will be known as that party that rhetorically um, is against white supremacy and racism, but more than rhetorically. We've been known as, as being against it more than rhetorically, and we don't actually have to do anything about it. As long as uh, it exists, we can continue to use this rhetorical device as part of our election strategy. And uh, I think that that's what these issues have become. And so, uh, you know, politicians, media, and uh, those of us in other positions of power and in other institutions, we're all complicit in this sort of stuff. Um, and I shouldn't have used we because it doesn't include me. Um, <laughs> you're all complicit in, in this sort of stuff. And we, I mean, I, I don't know how many other ways and times we need to say this. Like, this shit has to be taken seriously and must be responded to proactively or people will keep dying. People will keep being killed. <laughs> 